Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start out by reminding you that there is something called wealthformula.com. It's a website that has all sorts of additional information to complement this podcast, including free downloads of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. Uh, you can get George Newberry's uh, book, Burn Zones. You can get, uh, boy, you can get all sorts of things on there. So go go check it out at wealthformula.com. I also want to point out to you that there is sort of a private wealth formula community. Well, it is private community, actually. It's not sort of a private community. But this is called the Wealth Formula Network, and it is part of my course offering. It is a course that includes the likes of Ken McElroy and Tom Wheelwright and the real estate guys and a few other very, very smart people, Dean Graziosi, for example. And it also comes along with uh, access to our private Facebook group. And probably the most exciting thing is our biweekly mastermind calls, which are a lot of fun. And uh, that's where the magic happens, and that's where the beans get spilled. And we don't have to, you know, pretend we're not talking about something or some group or someone. We just tell it as it is. Anyway, check that all out at wealthformularoadmap.com. One last thing I will mention before I get on here, okay? Because tax season is here. Okay, you're, you, most people think of tax season as April, no, tax season is right now, okay? December. And for those of you who've made a lot of money, you've made a lot of money, W-2 wage earners, business owners alike, there is an option for you to potentially do a lot of good for for the environment and also pay significantly less in taxes. Make sure to go check out conserveandprosper.com. We've got literally a lot of people who are doing this right now. And you, you need to move quickly here if you're going to do this. Um, but it, it could be a huge opportunity for you. So check out conserveandprosper.com. I'll leave it at that, but I call it the nuclear option. So check that out. Now, let's talk about today's show, all right? So, you know, I've talked about this idea before, the value of gold. And, you know, I've kind of you know, I've, 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 I've had people on the show before talking about gold and different ways of owning it. Um, uh, you know, I, I personally like something called Bullion Vault. It's in the resources section of uh, wealthformula.com if you're curious about that. But 
uh, it's a it's an easier way to do it. So you know, I've written about this a lot too, and um, what I'd really like to do is come back to this question: is what really is the purpose of holding gold anyway? Okay, you know, gold bugs are you know they hoard the stuff, and they will argue that gold is the only real money, and that's why they hoard it. And I actually think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. You know, gold is money. And uh, if you want to keep some money around, gold is not a bad way to do that. But here's the thing. It's really just money, right? It, 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 it's not an investment, per se. It's, it's a hedge. But not only is gold money, it is essentially the anti-dollar, right? It's the anti-fiat, and that's really what, uh, what its true value is. In other words, as the dollar continues to degenerate and dilute, you know, printing all these dollars out there, all these euros, whatever it is you're printing, gold remains constant. So in other words, you know, we always talk about the value of gold going up or down. The reality is the value of gold remains the same. It's the dollars, it's the fiat, you know, it's the euros, it's everything else that loses value compared to that piece of gold. And if you need any evidence of this, all I can tell you is that back in the Roman times of Christ, an ounce of gold would buy you a nice toga and a pair of sandals, and today it'll buy you a nice suit and a pair of shoes and that's you know that that's what money is right it 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 keeps a, a a purchasing power is gold the only anti dollar that's the question now i will make potentially a controversial argument here and say that in reality i believe that real estate might actually be even a bigger hedge against the dollar compared to gold now after all Owning real estate is a hedge against inflation because rents go up to counteract the effects of diluted fiat currency. We all know that, right? And then that, in turn, increases net operating income. And if you are in multifamily, especially, you know that increasing uh, net operating income for any commercial real estate, for that ex- for that matter, the value of that asset in terms of dollars goes up. That's why you are hedging the economy. You're hedging inflation is what you're doing. Not hedging the economy necessarily, but you're hedging inflation, right? Your asset, the thing that you bought is moving up with inflation. You're not getting left behind like you are in dollars. It's doing pretty much the same thing as gold there, right? Except it's hopefully throwing off some cash along the way and building some equity as well. Now, I can tell you that there are properties, knowing this from being in the multifamily space, in Dallas, you know, for example, which is a a great real estate multifamily market that, you know, there'll be 200 or 300 unit buildings that a a Chinese group basically comes and pays $25 million in cash for, and they're barely cash flowing on it. Why do they do that? Well, they they just 
basically bought a piece of gold that they could store in the U.S. That's all they're doing, right? It's capital flight and it's hedging inflation. That's all it's doing. Now, the beauty of real estate, now here's the kicker and why I think it's actually better than gold when it comes to hedging inflation and being the anti-dollar. You see, inflation also erodes debt. So, as real estate investors, we frequently, almost always, I would say, utilize debt in our transactions. So if you finance that real estate, not only are you benefiting from the hedge against inflation, but the dollars you borrowed are effectively becoming worth less over time. In other words, if you borrowed $100,000, say, 20 years ago, that $100,000 is worth a lot less in terms of buying power than it is today. So effectively, you have used inflation to your advantage and eroded debt, right? That loan you took way back doesn't seem like much money anymore in today's dollars. Now, if you didn't get this part, listen to it again because it's critical. Inflation erodes debt. So with real estate, you're getting not only the inflationary hedge of the real asset and the cash flow, but you're effectively printing your own money by letting, by letting inflation erode your debt. So that's why it's a double whammy, and I believe it's actually a better hedge against fiat currency than even gold. Of course, the downside is that there's not very much liquidity in uh, real estate you know, there may be some in gold. Uh, obviously, if you're buying, you know, uh, you're buying the G GLD or something like that, you can sell it on the markets. But if you're buying real coins and stuff, it may be a little bit more challenging to sell that stuff. But anyway, the point I try to make here is important because I think people um, people are people get too caught up in this idea of that that gold is the only way that they can really hedge the dollar or inflation. And all these reasons that I'm talking about, all these things that I'm talking about, I'm talking about in you know uh, inflation, hedging inflation, eroding debt, you know, taking advantage of capital appreciation in terms of dollars. This is why people get rich with real estate. They do. That's what happens. People who are at, you know buying real estate over decades, they make a lot of money. They always do. And I'm not talking about flippers. I'm just talking about people who are buying, investing. Maybe they hold a few years and sell, or maybe they don't sell at all. They almost always seem to make a lot of money. Now, you know that I'm a multifamily guy. You know, I mean, for the most part, that's my thing, right? I, I invest and sponsor now primarily through syndications. I've owned multifamily buildings myself in the past. Most of those I've sold for the purpose of of being more on the passive side and more on the uh, the sponsor side. And for a variety of reasons, uh, if you're an accredited investor uh, with a full-time job, so an accredited investor being that you make either $200,000 per year, $300,000 if filing jointly, or you have a million dollars net worth outside of your uh, personal residence, if you meet those criteria, you are an accredited investor. And I still believe, uh, for a variety of reasons, that if you meet those criteria, that investing passively through uh, multifamily syndications might be the best way to do it. But again, that's my bias for sure. 
Um, and I, I don't pretend to be, you know, the guy who knows it all. I just, these, this is the information I have in front of me. And that's what tells me that this is the way to go. But again, there are others out there like Dean Graziosi, who was uh, in my course, uh, and in your roadmap to real wealth. And this is again, the thing that you can check out at your, uh, uh, roadmap.com. Dean owns thousands of houses, right? I mean, so this is a this is his niche area. Now, I've said this before, but it is important for everyone to kind of come around to this idea that, you know, it's best to learn from as many people as you can. Now, of course, I'm talking about people who know more than you because there's plenty of people who probably know less than you who are trying to teach you things as well, but don't listen to them. And then when you listen to those people who are smarter than you in a given area, listen to people with different opinions and then make your own educated investing decisions. Um, Now, in the single family home space, there are a few people who know more, in my opinion, than Marco Santorelli. And he is my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast. And when we come back, we're going to hear what Marco has to say about what's going on with Single Family Turnkey. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Marco Santorelli. Now, Marco is well-known probably to many of you. Uh, He's an investor author and the founder of Narada Real Estate Investments, uh, which is also a Wealth Formula podcast sponsor and a nationwide provider of turnkey cash flow investment property. Uh, Since 2004, Marco and his team have helped thousands of real estate investors create wealth and passive income through real estate. And when it comes to single family homes, Marco is the man. In addition to his top-notch investing prowess, uh, Marco also, of course, has a top-rated passive, uh, top-rated podcast called Passive Real Estate Investing, which uh, likely a number of you listen to as well. Welcome back to the show, Marco. How have, how have you been? 
Buck, thanks for having me back on. I've been great. I'm excited to talk to your audience and help provide some valuable content for yeah. them. How have you been? I've been good. I've been good. I've just, uh, you know, back from uh, Thanksgiving holidays, trying to get back into the, the whole, uh, you know, it, it's tough after the holidays and it's disorienting because especially after Thanksgiving, because, you know, you got you got Christmas coming up and it's like this sprint to Christmas and all that business. But um <laughs> But, you know, so you've been on uh, a couple times before, and but it's been a while, and I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of background on you and maybe some of the things that we haven't touched on. Uh, for example, you know, how did you get into real estate in the first place and ultimately end up starting a company like Narada back in 2004? Yeah, well, I'll be brief about that because I know we've talked about that in your previous episodes, but... Um, Long story short, I jumped into real estate investing when I was 18 years old. I just knew it was the right thing to do. So I bought my first property, kind of like what you see on HGTV today, you know, you know, with fix, fix, flip, flip or flop, whatever that show is called. Yeah, Vanilla but, Ice had one of those for a while, right? Didn't he? One of those. I, I'm not a big fan of those shows. And I know some of these guys that do these shows. <laughs> but long story short, I just knew that buy and hold real estate was a true wealth creator because I looked around at people that owned real estate and they lived a comfortable life. They had passive income. They had cash flow. Um, what was the common denominator? They all had real estate. So I knew that was the thing I needed to do. So I bought my first rental. I fixed it up, put a sign out on the lawn. There was no internet back then. So, you know, it was all paper and pen and signs. Uh, leased it, uh, managed it myself and held it for a number of years. And if there was a lesson to be learned from that one rental that I walked away with, it was this. Never, never, never sell your real estate. Yes, you can exchange it tax-free, do a tax-deferred exchange, and that's a great thing. But the mistake I made is I bought this $40,000-ish rental that's worth about $400,000 today. And it would have been cash flowing about $3,000 a month free and clear at this point in time if I kept it. I didn't keep it. So that's the lesson to be learned from my very first um, dive at 18 years old into real estate. But, you know, you fast forward that into 2003, and then I got sort of back into real estate investing in a very heavy way. And I uh, purchased 84 doors in nine months, uh, most of it being single family homes, duplexes, fourplexes. What year? What year was that one? When you did oh, four. That? Oh, four. Okay. Yeah. All right. Got it. So this is like, you know, before the meltdown, a few years before. It was about three to four years before the so-called meltdown, what we refer to as the Great Recession. Um, and I, I saw that coming in 2006. I mean, we're getting off off on a tangent here from your question, which is completely fine. But I got a phone call in 2006 from one of the key mortgage brokers I was working with. And he said, Marco, uh, this is after years after I started Norada Real Estate. And we had lots of clients who were helping people get into properties in different states around the country. He goes, hey, this loan program is being pulled. It no longer exists. The lenders pulled it. All the clients you have in underwriting, which was 35 at the time, are basically... Um, SOL, they have no financing. So we had to scramble to find other lenders to step in and take over those, those loans, those underwriting um, uh, transactions. Um, but when that happened a second time, I knew that was it. The credit was being pulled. Uh, lenders were getting skittish. They were pulling back on their stated income, no income, no asset, no job loans, what we call ninja loans. So all the credit was being pulled back. And I knew that that was the sign that lenders lost confidence in the market and they didn't want to be 
overexposed, even though they were overexposed. And, and, and sure enough, within a year or two, um, you know, Lehman Brothers, the stock market crashed, Lehman Brothers pulled, um, uh, you know, got pulled out from the stock market because they went bankrupt and on and on the list goes. So, Well, that's fascinating because, you know, most the story that I usually hear from people is that, you know, even up until the, the point of meltdown that the, the, the banks were lending hand over fist. But, but you're saying that they were you were starting to see some level of tightening before, you know, the proverbial, uh, you know, thing hit the fan. Yeah, I think what happened is lenders were probably starting to pull back on investor loans before they were pulling back on homeowner loans, which is really reverse. I want to don't want to say reverse psychology, but it's, it actually it doesn't make sense because you would think that they would pull back on homeowner loans first and investor loans second, because investors are certainly far more responsible from a business perspective and from a financial perspective in general terms than most homeowners who are getting into homes that they really can't afford or shouldn't be purchasing. So we as real estate investors are more responsible with that credit. And you would think that they would continue to lend to us and pull back on people who were purchasing their first home or, or you know, upgrading in, in their residential principal residence. Right. And, and you know, and, and to that extent, too, I mean, a number of people were using the same loans. I mean, they were using your typical homeowner loans to buy multiple properties as well. So there was still ways to get in at least to, mm-hmm. uh, at least for, for, for a few homes. So, you know, I've never really asked you about exactly kind of what happened in your world or when everything went South, like what happened? How did, how did, you know, people who, uh, you know, the investors that you had in the turnkey world over there, did a lot of them get hit hard or were they relatively sheltered from a lot of this because you were not doing necessarily a lot of the variable uh, loans and, uh, you know, there's some of these uh, interest only type floating rates and all that? That's a good question. It's funny because very few people even ask that question. What I basically put investors in two camps. We've got the camp that are more what I call speculators, I almost want to say gamblers, but those are the people who are swinging for the fences, trying to get a home run in terms of appreciation. So they're looking at capital gains. They're looking at price growth. That's fine if you are also in the second camp. And those are the investors who are focused on cash flow. They have income and they have enough, what we call debt service coverage ratio, which I know you and probably your entire audience are fairly familiar with, but that's really the excess over above your net operating income that you have to service debt on the property. So if you're cash flow positive and you have enough margin in there to weather through these, these real estate cycles or recessions, you're going to be fine because the cash flow is what I call glue. It gl- it's the glue that holds your deal together. So regardless of what what's happening in the market, regardless of what's happening to the price of the property, whether it's going up or down, you can weather through these economic storms or these real estate cycles. So the key is to be cash flow positive and have enough cushion or margin there where you've got all your expenses and your debt service covered. And if you're in a good market or a great market, you're going to survive. The people who suffered and got caught with their shorts down are the people who didn't have positive cash flow, couldn't service the debt, couldn't carry the load, especially if they had more than one property. Because I remember there were investors that were purchasing 15 new construction homes back then. And guess what? The market 
crash, the, 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 the floor fell from under them. They had five, 10, 15 homes that were just being completed in terms of construction. They weren't in a good neighborhood or a good market for, uh, for rentals, so they couldn't get the properties leased. And when they did get the properties leased, they didn't have enough income or cash flow to, to service the debt and have something left over. So they were negative on equity. They were negative on cash flow. And guess what? They didn't survive. So those are the people who handed the keys back to the bank, walked away from the properties, and in many cases filed for bankruptcy. You know, it's interesting that you you talk about that distinction because I think people are a little bit nervous about the asset potential, you know, some asset bubbles uh, that we have right now, um, you know, across the board, really, including mm -hmm. real estate. And and I often get asked the question, you know, how do you invest in this environment? And, you know, my take is still very much, uh, I, look at, I look at real estate the way I think some people describe gold. Okay. I know it sounds ridiculous, and but it but I do because if you think about it this way, when as you know, I'm in the multifamily game, and if you go to Dallas or something like that, you see some of these people, some of these some of these you know multi million dollar complexes being taken down by uh, Chinese money, and they're paying cash, and they have virtually you know they have virtually no cash flow, right? Why are they doing that? Because it's a hedge against inflation. So that's really what they're doing. And there may be, so if you look at real estate that way, you could have something that as long as you are not irresponsible with your debt, in other words, you've got decent cushion there, you know, debt coverage ratios and all that, that, that you're talking about. But in addition to that, that you're not over leveraged and that, that it can be something that really is like gold, right? Except you're throwing off a little bit of cash flow. I'm I'm a little bit different than you that I don't focus so much on cash flow. I want there to be cash flow, but I want there to be uh, an appreciation play as well. To me, the cash flow is the safety net, right? It's going to be what allows you to weather storms. If you're getting decent cash flow, that means you're probably not over leveraged. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I so it's it's interesting to uh, I'd love to get your take on kind of what I'm saying, but see if you think differently. Well, I think for the most part, we agree. You know, they refer to real estate as the ideal investment. You've got income. So I put cash flow at the top of the list. If I was to rank things in order, I, I, I put cash flow first. It's not always the most important thing, but it's certainly the most important thing in terms of your ability to have a stabilized asset that's generating income and then growing in terms of, of equity over time. So right. number one is cash flow. Uh, the second thing is the equity growth through the amortization. So that that that's just a normal um, function of 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 servicing um, the acquisition and paying off the debt. And, and really, it's not you paying; it's your tenant, as you know. The third is over time you have appreciation. Now that could be forced, as what you might do with your apartments and your syndications. You right. force some equity. You know, you grow, you cut your expenses, and you increase your revenue. Uh, but in terms of residential real estate, when you're talking one to four unit properties. That appreciation is based on comparable sales in the area. And over time, even though they fluctuate, they go up over time. And even if there wasn't a reason for that growth in the area, you're still going to have the push in price because of inflation, because we're dealing with sticks, bricks, concrete, copper. And over time, the cost of the materials go up. So the replacement costs go up, and that just naturally increases the, the value of that property. 
Well, and I know you want to interrupt me here, so go ahead. No, no, no. Inflation. I mean, that's basically what you're doing, and that that's where the to me the 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 comparison to gold is, right? I mean, why buy a piece of gold if it's not gonna, you know, the gold bugs are gonna, you know, start yelling at me. But why buy a piece of gold if you can buy real estate if you don't, you know, and 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 uh, get cash flow off of it and appreciation because you're still hedging the economy. Ultimately, it's doing the same, uh, hedging inflation rather. Um, and it, why, 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 why not just have something that's producing income at the same time? I guess that's my, point. well, well the, that's at the crux of it. There's really two major differences. Look, I stack gold and silver. Okay. So it's, I, am involved in, in many different asset classes, but here's the key difference. When you're looking at precious metals, yes, they're an inflation hedge. However, there's two major key differentiators between gold, silver, and real estate. Number one is there's no cash flow for metals, as you know. So you, you, yes, you have an asset, but you don't have income. The number two thing is that um, the metals market, in fact, you can make an argument that virtually every commodities market is manipulated. It, it is manipulated by the markets and by the powers that be that are behind you know, these large institutions and industries. Uh, whereas with real estate, it's really hard to manipulate it because we're talking about a market that has natural supply and demand forces. And so if all the houses are selling for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars around you, you know, all things being equal, you've got a hundred and fifty thousand dollar home. You cannot just go in and, you know, short the market and change the price overnight like you can with a lot of the commodities and metals that we're talking about. Right. So let's let's talk about the current environment right now. If you're you know, you want you're, you're interested in getting into the single family home market which is, again, not something that I have a lot of experience with. Like, what what's the current, what does it look like out there in terms of, let's say, prices, in terms of, you know, what, what's going on uh, uh, with financing options, et cetera? I mean, in, is, it a, is it a good environment still to buy single-family homes? Well, this is going to sound like a biased answer, but it's a great time to be investing, whether you're investing in single families, fourplexes, or apartments. What's important is, is the market, the neighborhood, and the fundamentals or the numbers on the, the deal that you're looking at. So here's the problem that we've been seeing. Inventory has been really tight and it's getting tighter. Why? We have a shortage of housing and we've had a shortage of housing for many years in this country. We need about 1 million to a million and a half, but a million new household formations every year. The problem is, is we're only producing about 750,000 units per year. So every year we're in a deficit and that deficit is growing. So we've got a shortage of housing in terms of rentals and for uh, new home, household formations or new homes for people to move into, including new, new homes uh, for um, you know, first-time home buyers. So that's a big problem. As an investor, we're finding it harder and harder to find distressed inventory to fix and put it back into the market as, you know, what we'll refer to as like new or turnkey rentals. So demand is increasing. We're getting more calls from investors for rentals, single families, duplexes, fourplexes, but at the same time, we're finding inventories to be tighter and tighter. In an ideal world, I, don't, I would only want three markets to be in, in, for, in terms of cash flow and three markets to be in, in terms of capital growth or or just stronger appreciation potential that's a total of six markets today as i talk to you we're in 22 markets from atlanta all the way through to oh man i i i want to say uh 
uh, Tampa, Florida. I mean, that's kind of the spread. And the reason we've had to go wide is because we don't have the depth in terms of inventory. So that's how we're making up for that problem. So the challenge is one, shortage of inventory. Two is, um, as you know, and you're well aware, Buck, uh, cap rates have been compressed right across the board from single family to apartments, more so in the apartment space than in the single family home, because you can be very nimble when you're investing in single families, duplexes and fourplexes. You can go to, to, to secondary markets. You can look for new secondary markets and you can also expand out into tertiary markets, which are the kind of the smaller, certainly more boring type markets. I say boring in quotes. But these markets give you the cap rates that you're looking for, not necessarily always the growth potential, but we're looking for both. We're looking for markets that have that cash flow and have the growth potential for those that want it. So challenge number one, supply. Challenge number two, strong demand, both from investors looking for rentals and from people looking for homes. Um, from a, a financing perspective, uh, credit is very accessible and available. Uh, it, but interestingly enough, uh, even with the uh, mortgage rates having inched up this year, and we expect it to inch up two more times into 2019, it's still it, it's still incredibly cheap financing. If you're at five and a half percent for a 30-year fixed-rate loan for an investor, we're talking investment loans, not you know for principal residents, that's still still lower than the historical norm, which has been I believe around seven percent. And when you run the numbers, guess what? If you've got the cash flow, you cover your, your, your operating expenses, you cover your debt service, and you still have a good margin left over, um, there's no reason why you shouldn't be getting all this cheap financing. The question is, how much of it do you want? The answer to that question is, is as much as I can get. Right. So, um, so those are some of the challenges we're seeing. But you know, the, the face of real estate investing hasn't changed today compared to what it was a year ago compared to what it was in 2012, which was roughly speaking, the bottom of the market in most local real estate markets. The difference is, the difference has been the change in inventory, the change in price, um, um, and the change in the, the market that you would focus on as a real estate investor. Now, I don't know with you in terms of apartment complexes and syndications, is if you're seeing the same type of thing as we are in the single family space, but that's typically what we see um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think with multifamily, my my approach very much right now is to, you know, to to look at, you know, what can you do when you have compressed cap rates? Uh, well, you you basically can, you know, make a make a plan that you know you're gonna be you're gonna be okay, you know, whichever way the markets turn. And to me, uh, one of the best ways of doing that right now is to you know, be somewhat moderate in terms of leverage and then have a plan for significant value add. And I think you can still make it work because then what you're doing is with the value add and the, you know, increasing the net operating income, income you're effectively deleveraging on top of taking moderate leverage. I think that's the way to play the market right now and be safe for the long run. But um, let me ask you in terms of uh, specific markets, what are some uh, what are your some of your favorite markets? I mean, I know you have sort of your you know your cash flow markets. You have your your appreciation markets. Give me a, give me your top uh, two or three markets and why you like them. Um, well, that's a podcast episode in itself. Sure, but... <laughs> sure. Oh, we like to be efficient here. You know, just I, I love I love efficiency. <laughs> okay, we'll be concise. 
So in terms of the 22-ish markets that we're in right now, and we ebb and flow in these markets just because of what we talked about a minute ago in terms of inventory or their lack thereof, um, the markets we're seeing the strongest price growth in right now are uh, places like uh, Boise, Idaho, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Indianapolis, Kansas City, you know, right in the heart of the Midwest, Jacksonville, Florida, Salt Lake City, um, Dayton, Ohio, of all places. So these are very strong appreciating markets. They have a lot of momentum right now. They've had momentum for over a year. We've seen five to 10% year over year appreciation rates as a whole. I'm talking about the MSA, the metropolitan area, sure. not necessarily down to the local neighborhood level, which is important to consider too. Um, but those are the markets that we uh, do a lot of business in and investors really like because they've got great numbers, great rental market. Uh, they have a good story. There are fundamentals there in terms of jobs and job growth. We have net migration that's driving these markets. Now, when you look more at the oh, and Dallas as well, Dallas is, although Dallas is cooling off, it's still got you know a lot of, of drive and momentum in it. But there's been a, an interesting change in Dallas from this year over last year. We've actually seen quite a bit of a pullback in that market in terms of, of price appreciation and, and uh, inventory. Now, those are, the, those are what the markets I would refer to as growth markets or hybrid markets. We love those markets um, as long as you can get the inventory and the cash flow. On the flip side or on the other end of that equation is what we call linear or cash flow markets. Those markets are you know, the tried and true Memphis of the world. Um, you know, Huntsville, Cleveland, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Chicago is a hybrid market. It's kind of a mixed bag. You've got pockets in there that, you, that are really focused on cash flow and you've got pockets in there that, that experience great growth. But then again, it's a very large metropolitan area and that's your hometown. So I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah. Um, Birmingham, Alabama is a great, you know, stable um, cash flow market. Uh, Oklahoma City, Montgomery. Uh, I mentioned Memphis. What else is there? The, the Quad Cities area, like the Davenport, uh, Rock Island, uh, Moline area, that's that's a good, uh, very stable market that gives you good cash flow. It's a little bit pricier right now, but we like that as well. So I threw a lot at you here, Buck. I, you know, like I said, we're talking 22 so everywhere. markets. Everywhere is good, Buck. <laughs> right but, 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 but keep putting it in perspective. I'm, I'm talking 22 markets out of 404 markets that we track. Right. Okay. There's 404 metropolitan areas that we track on a quarterly basis to see what is going on. So, um, like I said, in an ideal world, I'd only want six, three in terms of growth, three in terms of cash flow. And that to me is less brain damage than trying to track 22 or 404. Right. So one of the other questions I had for you, and I don't know if this is something that's, uh, uh, you're seeing uh, opportunities for in single family is opportunity zones. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about here with the, uh, the Trump tax or the capital gains, basically rolling capital gains uh, from other investments <clears throat> into uh, real estate in areas that are, um, you know, that they're basically trying to gentrify. Have you, have you seen much of that in a single family? I mean, it's tricky, I think, but I'm curious if you've seen much of that. Yeah, so... On December 22nd of last year, the that new tax law that went into play, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, what they refer to as the TCJA, that designated uh, this opportunity, I say opportunity in quotes, 
uh, of these opportunity zones, which are really um, a state mandate to identify economically distressed communities within the state where investors can come in with new capital and improve or gent um, gentrify or regentrify right. those areas. So these are areas that may be eligible for preferred tax treatments. Um, let me let me rephrase that. You as an investor get preferred right. tax treatments if you invest into these areas. So I don't know if you're involved in any of the opportunity zones right now, um, but these areas have been nominated. Many of them have already been approved by the, the Secretary of the Treasury. And so the only way to invest in these areas though, is you need to invest in a fund, an opportunity fund that takes that capital and then puts it into those areas. So I have yet to see a project come out of these opportunity zones. I can guarantee you there's gonna be a ton of them. Yep. I saw this happen about 10 years ago with what they referred to as opportunity, opportunity or go zones back then. They referred, referred to them as uh, golf opportunity zones or GO, go zones for short. And there were tons of projects in the Gulf. So I expect to see a lot of projects come out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So, so one of the things, you know, going back and is that's very clearly different from 2004 when you first started Narada is that the whole space of turnkey providers has just exploded. I mean, you, you probably were really one of the first guys who were really providing this kind of service, right? I mean, now it's everywhere. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious kind of your take on, you know, if people are starting to evaluate different providers, you know, obviously you're, you're you know, we think you do a great job and, and you know, I, I personally, you know, think you, think you know what you're doing and I know, like, and trust you and all those things. But when people look at a turnkey provider, you know, what are some of the things that they ought to be looking at? Because, you know, not all of them are created equally. Buck, I'm not sure if that was intended as a, as a low ball softball <laughs> question. Well, I mean, listen, I think it's not really a softball question because really, I think it's, it's one of these things where I always say that, you know, when people read Robert Kiyosaki's book, um, you know, when they read Cashflow Quadrant or they read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, they get super excited. You know, I'm going to invest in real estate. I'm going to do, ca I'm going to get some cash. I'm going to buy some houses. But then the question is, wait, so now what do I do? Right. And so, right. so, so I guess, I guess turnkey for particularly for, you know, individuals who are interested in single family who maybe don't have access even to multifamily. Uh, it's a great way to especially get into real estate for the first sure. time potentially, but they don't know, like, you know, it, it's all noise, right? It's all noise. I mean, I don't know how many turnkey yeah. providers I just happen to end up on their email list and I'm getting blasted all the time and not. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, 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 and I didn't intend to give you a hard time about, about it. It's, it's, I like to, just, yeah, I like to make sure we're covering everybody on the show, you know? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. It's a good question. And, and I have a good answer for you. Let's go back in time a little bit here and look back at 2003. At that time, there was really only one. I, I wasn't. I started the business in January of 2004. I was literally the second company that I would label as a turnkey property provider, especially on a national basis. There was only one other company out there, which I'll call a competitor in quotes. They 
they they're still around today, but they're a shell of what they used to be. And I, I love them and respect them. And, and actually the, comp, the the two principals of the company are friends of mine and I love them to death. Um, but there was only other one other company in my backyard at the time. So in, in when I started this business, I really wanted to push the term and phrase turnkey. And even to this day, some people still don't understand what turnkey real estate investments are and turnkey real estate investing. So it's my job to educate people. And it's my fault if enough people don't know about it. But I did market the snot out of that term for years. <laughs> what ended up happening is as the real estate market was hot and getting hotter in 04 and 05, a lot of people came out of the woodwork just as you mentioned a minute ago, saying that there's, quote, all these turnkey companies coming out of the woodwork. Now, guess what? Most of those people, I say people, are real estate agents or local brokers that are trying to get into the space to address the need of real estate investors. They don't have a complete solution. They have pieces, and but they don't have the education and the service and the know-how on how to service clients properly. Second, a lot of these people are local in scope. So they have one tool in their toolbox and all they can talk to you about is the market that they live in or operate in. Um, whereas, you know, being on a national basis, we can, we can be unbiased and we can talk about different markets and we can cater markets, neighborhoods, and properties to the needs of each individual investor. But here's what happened in 2006 when the market started to cool off and then we ultimately had a crash. All these so-called competitors, and I say 98% of them disappeared. I literally only had about one, maybe two competitors at the time after the Great Recession, which was great because we were one of the only players out there. Now you fast forward again, 10 years down the road, you know, 2018, we're seeing the same thing happen. Are we going to have a recession? Absolutely. When is it going to happen? I don't have a crystal ball. If I had to take a guess, I'd say in two years or less, we're going to see another recession. We're going to have another correction in the real estate markets because real estate markets are local. So we're going to have a whole bunch of interesting fluctuations and corrections, but we're going to see all that happen again. History repeats itself, or at least it rhymes to what has happened in the past. So yes, there's going to be a lot of these people who don't have a reputation or have a bad reputation that are going to implode. They're going to disappear. There's only going to be a few players left. Uh, we'll be one of those people. We're one of the largest companies out there doing some of the most, um, most volume, if that's proper grammar uh, in the country today. We have you know, a great reputation and I do everything I can to preserve and protect it. So the key is have a good reputation, protect yourself, service your clients well, stand behind them and watch their back. If things go sideways or go bad, step in and help them. That's what we do. Fortunately, not every day because most of the time things go well. But look, at the end of the day, you, you know, the number one person is your customer, it's your client. You have to help them and service them and protect them and watch their back. That's who we care about the most. The providers and property management companies and all those people that we work with have to come in second place. Yes, they're important, but they come in second yeah. place. So there was, uh, no, I can't, I won't go into details on this because I don't want anybody to try to sue me, but there was a very high profile uh, person uh, who is in, in, in the uh, turnkey space. <clears throat> Uh, I was not unaware of, of, of any of this until it was brought to my attention by um, my uh, mastermind group, my uh, Wealth Formula Network group. That, that's, that's a wealth formula. Uh, we have these biweekly calls, and, and one of the guys on there was talking about how he had bought some houses uh, from this group. And again, very high profile, uh, et cetera. And they ended up, as it ended up um, 
it ended up looking like it was some kind of a Ponzi scheme because he was getting checks in the mail and then suddenly they stopped. And then he actually went out there and flew out there to see these houses, which he'd never seen. And um, the houses looked like they'd never been renovated and certainly wasn't, nobody was ever living there. Yet he was getting checks. Now how, I mean, it's, you, you just talked about, you know, of course, reputation, et cetera. Man, so much of this world, as you and I both know, is marketing, right? And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at here, right? Is like, how do you avoid that? Like, how do you avoid that kind of situation where, you know, uh, and and I don't even know if this individual who owned this company knew what was going on, but I know it happened. And I've got a few investors in my group who were, you know, who lost a lot of money. I have a comment and a tip. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, by the way. Right? I know exactly who yeah. you're talking about. And right. we, in our company here, you know, we have, I have six investment counselors, a transaction coordinator, and, and, you know, two other assistants. We jokingly say that the individual you're referring to and their, his company um, is one of our best marketers because we get a lot of calls from investors that are talking to this company and talking to that company and talking to the company that you're referring to. And they ultimately come to us or come back to us saying, hey, I spoke to them or so-and-so and I didn't feel comfortable or I didn't like the product they were selling or something was fishy or I looked online in the online forums and I read a bunch of bad stuff and they do a little more due diligence and they realize, oh my gosh, they're in a class action lawsuit or this is going on or that's going on. And just because of that, the story and the reputation or you know, tainted reputation that's out there they end up coming to us. So we jokingly say that they're our best salesperson or marketers because they're driving business to us. Yeah. So I guess the comment I'm making is that you need to do your due diligence and ask questions, which is part of the tip I'm trying to give people is, is this, you know, put, put your thinking ahead on, don't be emotional, be logical, ask questions, um, do your research, uh, there's a lot of information online, you know, uh, I, I think I can say, you know, bigger pockets on your show because it is a well-known sure, public sure, sure. forum. I have a love-hate relationship with bigger pockets because the great thing about it is, you know, you can have a hundred different opinions. That's great. But the, the, the thing I hate about it is you have a hundred different opinions and they're, they're nothing but opinions. And sometimes people are chiming in, not knowing what the heck they're talking about. But but the thing is, is there's always a small percentage of people who really do know what they're talking about. And they're posting factual information with references and links to other sources of information. So you can do your research and your due diligence. So at the end of the day, take your time. Don't rush into investing. Um, you know, source out the right people that you need on your team because team is critically important. As Kiyosaki says, you know, real estate investing is a team sport. And I firmly believe that. So Take your time, do your due diligence, you know, vet the people you're talking to so you know who to work with and just be careful because there are some slimy people out there. Uh, but here's the other tip. Now I actually have two tips now that I think about it. The second tip is um, a lot of the product that I've seen and that I know that this person or company that you're referring to has been selling and to this day still sells is what I, you know, semi-lovingly or jokingly say are crack houses. I say that in quotes. Um, because, you know, a lot of times when you look at 40, 50, even $60,000 homes in most markets in the United States, they're actually in very sketchy neighborhoods, what I'll often call C, C minus, sometimes D class neighborhoods. And I know you're going to have a lot of brain damage and headaches by investing in those areas. 
you're dealing with a type of tenant, a demographic of people that love them or hate them, have a lot of transition and turnover and, and trouble and they change jobs often and they look, they don't make a lot of money. So, um, you know, even $500 a month in rent is often one third of their monthly income. So, you know, you're, you're not dealing with the, probably the best type of tenant class that you want to service as a customer being a real estate investor. So look, I'm not, you know, I, I'm just calling a spade a spade. It is what it is. But we have kind of a rule of thumb in our company that if it's under 70, 75, maybe $80,000, we're not going to touch it. We have a few of them, but we generally don't sell anything under seventy-five, $80,000 because I just know the type of neighborhood it's in and I don't want to be there. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, great, Marco. You know, this has been uh, this has been great. We've had you on a couple of times, but this was a, a unique discussion. I think we hit a lot of things that were, um, I think, uh, were, were useful topics to 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 uh, to consider. So, Narada is it NaradaRealEstate.com, Narada.com. How do how do we get there? I am trying to buy that domain, Narada.com. <laughs> I know the company owner. Oh, well, <laughs> he won't sell it. You no, know, you but, won't. But, <laughs> no, because they've had it for the longest time, way before me. Um, but NoradaRealEstate.com. <laughs> Norada mean something? I don't, I don't even know what Norada means. Why Why does somebody own that? Uh, I don't know. I don't think it means anything. It's just a very brandable name with a very strong psychological impact. It actually went through a psychological evaluation as part of 100 names. And believe it or not, Norada, N-O-R-A-D-A, came out at the top of a list of 100 <laughs> prospective names for a company. No kidding. So yeah. I, I borrowed it from them. And so Norada Real Estate Investments is what it ultimately became. Well, when next time I want to try to, you know, sell something, I'm just going to keep saying Norada every uh, periodically. When... <laughs> <laughs> you can drop Norada. Norada. Okay, yeah, well, but the let... domain name, yeah, just to it? be clear, NoradaRealEstate.com or PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. Those two sites link to each other. Fantastic. Marco, thanks again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Buck, thank you ever so much. It's always been fun. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, check out Narada's you know, page if you have an interest in investing in single-family turnkey rentals. Marco works hard at keeping high standards for his company. And, and you know, this is something that's very important. And you've heard in part of our conversation where there has been some some companies where, you know, some of the investors in our group have lost a lot of money because, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it was carelessness or if it was intentional, nefarious activity, whatever the case may be. But, man, this is a slippery slope, and I would just be careful. I know Nor Narada, at least I know Marco, and I and I know what he I personally feel like I know, like and trust him, and uh, he's a guy that that you might want to contact if you're interested in this space. By the way, if you're wondering um, about where these private conversations that we alluded to, you know, about the turnkey providers and all that, again, they happen in that Wealth Formula Network in those private conversations on those biweekly mastermind calls. Uh, and again, if you you can check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, also one more thing. I just want to mention this one more time because I think it's important given the timing of this. If you are an accredited investor and you know you made a lot of money and you're, and you're, you're poised right now to be paying a lot of taxes for 2018, I really think that it is probably worth your while to go and check out a page that is at conserveandprosper.com. 
when you watch that webinar, it will become evidently very evident to you why I am suggesting that you do that. Um, anyway, that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at SafeFuelPodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, SafeFuelPodcast.com.